You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 155 of Life in Ruins Podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnan, and I am unfortunately joined by my co-host, David Howe. For this week's episode, we are joined by Jacob Arnzen, who is a good friend of the podcast, gamer, and also a recent graduate of the University of Wyoming. Uh, he's going to talk about his career in archaeology and why he studies dragonglass. Jacob, how are you doing on this lovely Tuesday? Oh, I'm doing great. Just got back from work. It was a long trip through Portland traffic, but got through it and I'm doing okay. Good. I also want to start out by saying you, you're a longtime listener of the podcast, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I pr- pretty much uh, started listening to you guys, well, episode one. So, <laughs> Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, you guys, uh, when you started it, I was uh, still in, I think I just started working for the Forest Service. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it was kind of fun because I, I would download your guys' episodes and bring them out with me to the field. And then during lunch break, which is usually our 30-minute break for lunch, I would turn it on. <laughs> just have, like, some background noise or, or like, just to listen what you guys have to say or who you, what guests you had on. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good to know. Have, uh, have you rated and reviewed the podcast before? Yes, I have. Okay. It's very important to do so. You passed the vibe check. That's good, man. <laughs> cool. That's a, that's a warning to all the other guys. You get to come on the show if you're written. No, you, uh, actually, I don't know. Absolutely not. I'm not allowed to um, make, uh, <laughs> like, uh, what, are those, what, are, what is the Sith dealing? Promises. Absolutes. There you go. And like, yeah. um, Carlton's here. Anyway, yeah, Connor, take it away. Thank you for listening to those early episodes. I know they're rough and a lot of giggling, but, you know, we made it through. So, you are currently living in the Pacific Northwest. Is it finally the the darkness? Is it gone yet, or is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's actually been gorgeous here for the past five days. It's been great. Like we had an eighty degree day Friday, and then it was again thirty uh, eighty on Saturday and Sunday. It started cooling off, and, to, and the last couple of days have been pretty cool, but partly cloudy. But it's been still pretty warm and sunny, and it's been great. Like uh, we we've had a pretty long winter out here too, and so it's uh, kind of. We had snow up in the foothills not too long ago, so it was kind of kind of a long winter. Yeah, we're finally turning the corner up here too, which is thank goodness. You know, <laughs> although well, winter in Wyoming is like till June, so <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I had friends come visit me when I was there in May, and like you know, you start doing field work late May, and they came out to visit. I think it was May first, and it had just dumped snow like a blizzard. And they, they were from Tennessee, so they hadn't seen that much snow in their life. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you Welcome to Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you grew up in um, Oregon, but not in the place that everyone kind of pictures Oregon as, right? The place you grew up in is a little different. Yeah. So most people, when they come to Oregon, they think of this almost like tempered rainforest. Very, very lush and green, very wet, very gray, gloomy. I think of veganism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and homeless yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> Legalized crack. That's just, that's just Portland. <laughs> uh, just kidding, Portland. Love you. Uh, but that's actually just like one third of the state. The other two thirds is a lot of high desert environment, climate. And so the area that I grew up in was in the far northeastern corner of of Oregon uh, near the town called Grand, And it's up in a mountains and it's in this nice green valley but it's not like green as like this area of the of the uh, Willamette Valley and the coastal range of Oregon 
it still gets pretty dry and pretty hot out there. And, you know, we're surrounded by big Ponderosa forests out there. Um, and we have big prairies of sagebrush and then also grass prairies for along the Columbia River. But it's significantly drier and warmer in that in that part of Oregon. And so it's like you get a lot of shades of green in, in Western Oregon, but you get onto Eastern Oregon, east of the Cascades, and you get a lot of shades of browns and yellows. Yeah, it's kind of a wild. Once you like drive out of Portland going east, you like follow the Columbia River and all that area, which is absolutely gorgeous. Like anyone should do that drive. Beautiful. But then you really get this like quick transition to like, oh shit, I'm in the desert. <laughs> yeah, it does change really rapidly as soon as you get past like, especially the, the Hood River and, and when you get to the Dalles. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an absolutely beautiful area. I drove through La Grande and Baker City, the metropolises that they are, and uh, <laughs> no, it was it was is beautiful country out there. It reminds me of bits and pieces of like Montana and Colorado, kind of those those inner mountain valleys and whatnot. But it, I when I was driving through there, I also thought this has got to be a great place for people to live. Like historically, prehistorically, like it just seems like a great place to uh, settle down. Yeah, absolutely. So Eastern Oregon has a very extensive archaeological and historical record. You know, some of the oldest sites in Oregon are located in Eastern Oregon. Paisley Caves, Conley Caves, Rimrock Draw. These are really old Paleo-Indian sites. And so having them in Eastern Oregon means that this place was pretty special for people even for that, uh, that long ago. And, you know, in this area has been continuously used even from that time all the way to historical period. And, you know, this is like the first, some of the first locations where pioneers would have came to in Oregon. Yeah. So it seems like it's a pretty, you know, great place to live, like you were saying, prehistorically. And obviously Clovis comes through there, maybe something before Clovis. But can you tell us why? And like growing up in New York, like when I thought it was Oregon, and two, like we played Oregon Trail on the computer and like, why was Oregon like this bastion of like, you know, why is there a trail that goes through there as opposed to California or, you know, Washington? Right. Well, there's actually the California Trail, which was part of colonization of, uh, of California uh, mm. by Americans. But like the most famously known Oregon Trail is actually just like it's multiple trails, a system of trails that all lead to Oregon. The reason for like this push for to move to Oregon was kind of like uh, was to outcompete the British because the British were also moving in. The Hudson Bay Company had a big part to play in Oregon history, even way like just right after Lewis and Clark came through, 1802 to 1804, the Hudson Bay Company right away came in and were like, "Oh, there's a bunch of furs out here." So they started establishing a, quite a bit of a presence out here. And then the uh, you know the American government was like, "Oh, we we need to have an American establishment." on the western coast so by promoting the land grant act which was allowed for american citizens to acquire 160 acres of real estate in uh in the west uh non-settled in non-settled areas so and granted this this is all lands that were taken from the local indigenous groups so non-settled is non-settled is like yeah so what i mean by (laughs) non-settled is non-settled by white folks (laughs) and so you know it was very tantalizing for a lot of americans who were struggling to make established farms in parts of the east because it was getting kind of crowded out there so 
it was quite tantalizing to get free 160 acres of real estate in this this barely publicized primo farmland in in this new land and this new Oregon Oregon country. So it really kicked off in, in the 1840s, the uh, Oregon Trail, and uh, tens of thousands of immigrants made that crossing into Oregon. So when they first got here, though, a lot of them were quite surprised to, to realize that there was already a bunch of white settlers already here. Um, a lot of them were Scottish, Irish, and French Canadian and French Canadian fur trappers that were employed by the um, Hudson Bay Company. But when they retired, the Hudson Bay Company kind of promoted that they should stay here and farm the ground and you know grow cro- local crops here so they can give it, sell it to the Hudson Bay Company and the Hudson Bay Company can sell it to their fur trappers for you know make bread and stuff for them. A lot of yeah. hard tack. <laughs> I know in Wyoming when I worked on Oregon Trail sites, like there's a lot of like graves and like obviously children's size, some of them adult sized. In Oregon, do you see a lot of graves and do they mark and denote that they died of dysentery? <laughs> No, not really. I don't think there's like a like a significant amount of graves that we find. It's not an option on the site form. Yeah, it's no. Yeah, it's not an option. <laughs> well, there's is an option on the site forms for graves, but like it doesn't specify what kind of graves. Because I'm sure Connor could run a model on GIS that like filters out which ones were dysentery and which ones were wolves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, through my career of working in in Oregon, I've only found well, not even found them. I, it's only been. A lot of these were already known grave sites from pioneer journals because uh, they usually kept pretty good records of like who was on there, who and then who died. And, and uh, you know, cross reference yeah. it with a lot of uh, diaries and journals from all these pioneers. I mean, maybe they might have mentioned in their journals that they died of dysentery, but it's not going to say that on their headstones. And a lot of these headstones are just made. You can't spell made diarrhea without diary. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and a lot of people can't spell dysentery during that time, so. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like a lot of these headstones are made from wood, so they're not going to survive the arc, the, the elements, so. Sure. Yeah. All right. So, sorry. It's to, an extra, just too much characters in the, in the, in the space, you know? Right. They hit their character limit real, real, real quickly. Yeah. Uh, in, in that area, obviously, and you specialized in obsidian, which is volcanic class, or. Must be dragon glass. Dragon glass. <laughs> it, uh, it like the the native groups use that, or the indigenous groups there, like utilized it pretty well because it's pretty common. But before you know, we dive into that, could you tell us, like, before obviously the, the Euro Americans got there, and I guess Lewis and Clark can, can you talk about that first, I guess, and then I, I wanted to know what tribes lived there, or you know, like who was there. Yeah, I mean, you're basically asking me about all the tribes that li- uh, that lived in Oregon, and the answer is is there's a lot and variety of, of different distinctive groups but like the area that i'm currently working in which is primarily along the willamette valley which is like that the big lush green valley you see if you look at a map of oregon there was primarily a group called the kalapuya tribes and they're made up of different different bands of people there was like the tualatin the yamhill the mohawk and that's just to name a few but there's several bands that made up this group of kalapuya okay yeah, and so and and then you go further into the coast range. The amount of groups that lived on the coast range is definitely uh, there's a large number of groups. Yeah, yeah, it's like staggering. If you look at like an intro textbook, it's insanely dense. But it seems like that because it could support that. Lots of focus on rivers, salmon, different resources. Obviously, made that place 
great to live in. The rain made you sad, but it'll, you know, you get through it. <laughs> Produces a lot of vegetation. It was sought out for by like a lot of uh, herbivores like deer and elk. And, and you were saying too, like the rivers produced a lot of fish, especially salmon runs. Hmm. Like Camus was a big intensified uh, geophyte out in the Willamette Valley. Yeah. Was all this taught like in your school growing up? Were you given like Oregon history and prehistory? Well, you mean talking about like high school? I mean, like even like high school and elementary school. I mean, is it is oh, it yeah. something that they focus on? Yeah. I mean, when we were in elementary school, they, they really kind of introduced us to to Oregon history. And I remember fondly when I was in elementary school, like fourth or sixth grade, we had these field trips that we'd go to, to Fort Walla Walla, which was the local historical museum near my elementary school. And it was uh, first a fur trapping outpost, and then it became like this trading fort for pioneers when they first got into the Oregon country. Then it became a Civil War era fort. Like it was, it had a, a, de- a detachment of Union troops there during the Civil War, and then it, during World War One, it became a why is World that? War One outpost. Like in, in case the war went out there, they just stationed troops there, or like why? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was because if. Oregon, the citizens of Oregon actually became Southern sympathizers. Then uh, it was oh. the uh, Union troops were there to quell any unrest. There was a few occasions of unrest, but it wasn't like uh, <laughs> there yeah, was. Yeah, and, those and happened like what, like 150 years later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, about, yeah in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in Fort Walla Walla was the only fort had Union troops stationed there. There was numerous forts uh, along the Willamette Valley that were first built to guard the Indian reservations that were being established out there, like Fort Haskins, Fort Yamhill, and Fort Umqua. These are three major forts that were there, but then became pretty strategically important during the Civil War. They housed a lot of Union volunteers and Union infantry detachments protecting uh, Union interests there in Oregon. Hmm. And I, I think I kind of touched on this before, but Lewis and Clark, I know when they went through with Sacagawea, they found like Oregon and they, they built a little fort there on the coast. Which one was that? That was Fort Clapsit. And it's technically on, it's on the Washington side of the Columbia river, like right at pretty much at the mouth of the Columbia river It's where they spent their winter of 1803, I believe. Hmm. And when they were the first Euro-Americans to complain about the wet weather. In my book. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of journal entries of them complaining, complaining about how wet it is. Because when winter here uh, on the western side of Oregon is, is, is very wet. We get a lot of moisture and um, we don't get it technically in snow. We get it in rain. Hmm. And so the fort was built yeah, in 1803, and then uh, they abandoned it after the winter of 1803, and then spring of 1804, they made their way back up the Columbia River. And uh, the fort was was abandoned, and there was no other occupants of it. And I guess technically we haven't found the the, the footprint archaeologically of Fort Clapsit, but we know the general area of it's at. And there's actually a really good national park or state park there. I think it's a national park. Well, since you just triggered my PTSD for the the winters in in Washington, I think we're going to end this segment. We'll be right back with episode 155 of the Life in Ruins podcast with Jacob Arnson. Welcome back to episode 155 of the Life in Ruins podcast. I'm here with Connor John, and you guys know that. Sorry to to put him on you guys. And also, we're here with our friend Jacob Arnson. He is obsidian expert, man. Can you start with... 
What is obsidian? <laughs> What's obsidian? Must be trucking oh. glass. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're really putting me on the spot there, David, calling me the obsidian expert. There's way better experts of about obsidian out there than me. Dan Stuber, for one thing, and Craig, Craig Skinner. You just defended a master's thesis about it, so put oh, up your pants okay. and tell me about obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, man. Sorry, yeah. really we can riff on him because he's our good friend. Okay. Yes. Right. Just, yeah. just before we get emails about how we're being mean to Jacob, he is our friend. We do like him. <laughs> They're being mean to me. Save me. Uh, so yeah, obsidian. What it is is it's a basically it volcanic glass. So when uh, the igneous rock expands from the volcano as lava, it cools very yeah, yeah. quickly and informs this. Uh, when it's high in Seneca, it forms this volcanic glass and it be, it doesn't come out as clear like glass. Sometimes it does, but, but most of the time it's, it's this distinctive, very glassy black color, but except it actually does come in a variety of different colors. Sometimes like you have a mixture of black with mahogany or uh, which is kind of like this orangey red color. They can come in shades of blue. There's a rainbow obsidian, which is like this uh, multicolored sheen to it. Like if you hold it down to the light and let the light bend off of it, you get this rainbow sheen, but it's incredibly sharp. And that's one of the most important parts about this uh, type of stone is that it's, it's like glass. So it's kind of easy to break. And so that made it very sought out for, for flint nappers or for stone tool makers is because it is easy to make tools out of it. And it's also incredibly sharp. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever dropped a glass bottle on the ground and then tried to pick up the sharp pieces. You probably always had little tiny cuts on your hand or a really big nasty cut yeah you know this that is basically the same concept with obsidian yeah i know that they used it or it was they used it in like surgeon blades at -hmm. some point during our lives because it's it gets down to like a just a super sharp edge and another kind of cool aspect to it that is important archaeologically is that it's sourceable like its chemical composition is unique depending on what like what flow and and all that is. And that's kind of the impetus for your project, right? Your idea of looking at this in the past. Yeah, exactly. And, and it can be easily sourced to through a process called X-ray fluorescence or X X or F for short, which basically just means that it just shoots a laser uh, X, uh, X-ray laser at the obsidian. And then it just measures the different reflections off bounce back from that and looks at the chemical compositions of them because you're right. Like, cause I, Every flow, obsidian flow, has a different trace element compound to it. And it makes it very handy to know these trace element compounds and these flows because then when we find obsidian artifacts in an archaeological site, we can use X or F to source it back to it. Mm-hmm. And that was, yeah, kind of the premises of my thesis, which looked at the distribution of the type of obsidian from the flow glass buttes, which is located in central Oregon. Well, and it's, it's sweet that because in like shirts and stuff like that, we don't really have, and it's, there's, there's stuff working towards that, but other like forms of glass or rock that's used in the past, we don't really have that beautiful stuff. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, that's the one. Can you explain where Glass Buttes is and kind of some of the variations and possibly the importance of it in the past? Yeah. So Glass Buttes is located in central Oregon. So you go east of the Cascades, down past Bend, you just keep going down on Highway 20 until you hit mile marker 75, and there's a road called Obsidian Road. And the mountain ranges off to the south from that mile post, this 
two buttes there. There's big glass buttes and then there's little glass buttes. But that both of those mountains there are just covered with obsidian. It is one of the largest obsidian sources in Oregon. And it's one of hundreds of other obsidian sources in Oregon. But what makes this place pretty special is that it's a 796 square kilometer area of obsidian. There's That's also wild. Yeah, it's a big source. So is there a big volcano under it then? Or well, near the, it? What's uh, really interesting is that all of Eastern Oregon used to be very volcanic. Mm. You look on the maps, well, like if you get on Google Maps and stuff and turn on the terrain setting and you kind of just, or, or just even the satellite imagery and you just kind of scroll around, you'll start seeing different calderas just scattered around on the landscape of, of Eastern Oregon, which includes the Great Basin, like the Northern Great Basin is part of that, mm. the Columbia Plateau. But this place used to be heavily volcanic and... I don't know if there's a caldera right at Glass Buttes. I don't think there is. I think this is, was just like a formation that formed there. And then as it eroded away, it, it uh, uh, exposed all these sources out there. And what's also really interesting about Glass Buttes is that it's not made up of just one source. It's not one flow, but it's made up of nine different variances. So there's nine different flows that happen there. And we know chemically the trace elements for each one of those flows. And so we can test different obsidian from different sites of like which flow they came from some of them are more sought out for than others might mainly because it was probably due to access like they had better access to this particular flow than say like variant nine i don't think i've ever seen glassbeast obsidian nine variant nine found at an archaeological site yet hmm. but that, that but it could be because it's we recently figured out there was nine different flows at glassbeast i think i think in 20, 2003 is when that study concluded that there was nine flows. <laughs> so, so it was not a lot of that one of number nine. Yeah, but there could be. It's just that a lot of the older stuff that was sourced probably that might have glass beads subsidian nine. Just they just didn't know it was nine. They mm. probably just lumped it in with the rest of glass beads subsidian, which there used to be, I think, four flows prior to that. So it was just like glass beads one, two, three, four. Nice. And because we can source things and we, we have this like unique opportunity in the past to see how things moved and you kind of approached it theoretically through this like um, network analysis or this trade network kind of analysis, right? One of the things I wanted to do for my thesis for by using this distribution of Glassbeads Obsidian was to use it as a proxy for changes in the intensity of social networks in between hunter-gatherer societies. Like, how does this change over time? And so what I did was I co compiled a bunch of sites with Glassbeads Obsidian in it. You know, this was done through sourcing analysis, such as like XRF, and compiled a data set of all these sites in there, and then it plotted it out on GIS, and then separated them out by their date, the site's date ranges, and into temporal groups using like a pretty pretty large temporal groups though, like the terminal plastic early Holocene, which is like from 14,000 to 7,500 Cal BP. And then the middle Holocene, which is to 3000 Cal BP. And then post Holocene, mm. uh, late Holocene's everything post 3000. But it, like, so I find these up and then plotted it out via their temporal ranges. And what we see is that the, during earlier times, like during the terminal plastic early Holocene, the distribution was quite restricted. It didn't really go beyond Oregon. And then during the mid-Holocene, it started to expand further out. And then especially during the late Holocene, it just explodes. And a lot of it was ending up in British Columbia, which I thought was, was like the, the Salish Sea area, which is that the, the area where Vancouver Island's at, where Fraser, Va Fraser Valley's at, 
the San Juan Islands. In that area, there was a lot of glass views obsidian ending up there. And so what this means was that as like incorporating this distribution as a proxy for social networks means that social, so, and I guess I should explain what social networks are, which are the, uh, the interactions between, between groups. And I kind of was kind of more talking thinking of like the, the actions of sharing or mm. trading, exchanging of goods, mostly food items, and then also even creating agreements between each other, such as accesses to each other's lands for resources. The way this happens is because foraging is never really like a sustainable way to, to always be consistent. It's never it's never consistent or reliable. So there might be times when you have shortfalls in your resource gathering. And so you want to have a connection with your neighbor to when you can go up to him and be like, hey, man, can I borrow some of that that delicious fish that you have that you have a lot of you have enough to share and they would give it to you, but they would expect to be reciprocated later in the future when maybe say they have a, a bad time collecting enough fish. And so they might mm-hmm. ask you, it's like, Hey, can I get some of that extra huckleberries or elk meat? And during these processes of exchanging these food items, items such as like obsidian would be traded along with that. And it's not going to be the main object that's going to be traded, but it's just kind of like this part of like, thank you for doing this for me. And it's, and so that trade and that kind of goes along across these cultural borders. And so as social networks intensifies, that obsidian that got traded to that first group might be trading it to another group later on as they're getting other resources from them. And so as social networks intensifies, so does this distribution of glass beads obsidian. And that's what kind of what my thesis is, is showing is that, that yeah, it, it's pretty restricted when there was less people on the landscape and during the terminal Plastocene, early Holocene. But as populations start to grow and, and there's more people on the landscape, there's a, kind of a more need to to have create these social networks because there's less access to food. You also get to see this just this explosion of of glass bead subsidian being distributed only to the northwest, though, which is also kind of fascinating about my data was that there was no glass bead subsidian found in south of the Oregon border, hmm. in Nevada, especially in Nevada. It was it was just empty of it, and it, it's kind of fascinating because glass beads is not that far from the Oregon and Nevada border. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting being David watched the the thesis defense, but you know. ADHD is, is, is a hell of a drug and yep. he might've missed this, but one of our professors, and I, I was at the defense in person and one of our professors in front of us kind of had this really shocked reaction because like <laughs> Nevada is really not that far from Oregon and it's not, there's no real barrier that blocks it from the obsidian going down into Nevada and entering those trade networks and social networks and expanding from there. There's like no reason why or like reason why we can think of now that, 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 that wouldn't go to that place, but you, you kind of had a hypothesis about that, right? Yeah. And that professor actually asked me that question as soon as, as soon as I was done. And, Cause I also saw his reaction. I knew that question was going to come. He was going to ask me that question. Mm-hmm. And what the question was, is like, what is my thoughts on why glass abuse is not ending up in Nevada? It's probably because Nevada is also part of the great basin and Oregon and glass Buttes is also located on the northern edge of the Great Basin. And so the people who were living along Glass Buttes, who had access to Glass Buttes, also had access to the same resources of, of the Great Basin. And so did the people who lived in the Great Basin in Nevada. And so if both groups are sharing the same kind of resources, if 
one group is having a shortfall in resource gathering because the climate is changing and maybe like certain resources are not as, as abundant and predictable as they were before. That means the other group, group B, is also having a shortfall because they're the the climate and the resources are about the same. And so they're going to still probably not have enough resources to be able to share. And so since there was no ability to share resources between each other, there was no establishment of these of social networks between each other, at least through the processes that I was looking at, which is the sharing, exchanging of resources or accessing each other's lands. Or it could also be that the territory of that particular group was much larger and it encompassed that. And maybe they weren't just bringing that obsidian with them. So That's really interesting. I mean, if you and your neighbor have the same crops and they both fail at the same time, you're kind of just both shit out of luck. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're not going to want to go to them and be like, hey, I, I need... Like, can you, do you have extra food? And they're gonna be like, "No, man, we we you share the same crops." Like, <laughs> it's like in Settlers of Catan, you're like, "Hey, I need some sheep, like fresh out, bro." Yeah, yeah, we we're all out of sheep. <laughs> it's like, I know you got that sheep, man. Don't don't lie to me. Yeah, yeah I saw you drawing that extra card. <laughs> well, I I guess I had this question earlier. Like, you're talking about these social networks, and I guess they're more in calderas than Silicon Valleys, but there is a lot of silica in. Obsidian. Anyway, these were terrible jokes. Really fast. <laughs> like Silica uh, Valley. I, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Last movie, Silicon. Silicon Valley. <laughs> like I imagine those are also for like genetic diversity too. Like we kind of often, especially archaeologists, we just think of things in technology. But of course, back then when your hunter gatherer bands kind of traveling around, you gotta, you know, trade genetic flow and all those kind of right. things. I, I wonder yeah. if somebody's could use your thesis to look at that as well but you know it's a kind of a tiny precise area with little information to go with but i don't know i was just kind of thinking that while we were talking yeah i mean that was definitely something that myself and and my advisor dr robert kelly or bob that we talked about quite a bit about was like you know the the same thing about like marriage partners acquiring marriage partners and Mm -hmm. that's definitely part of social networks definitely so because if you have a small group of population you definitely want to seek out other groups of people to to seek out marriage partners because you don't want to start mixing in that gene pool. Yeah, you don't want the Habsburgs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so you, you don't want to accidentally marry your your sister. So you know, so uh, you know, you got to go out and find marriage partners. And so that definitely incorporates a lot about what is part of social networks. Unfortunately, I couldn't really incorporate that into my thesis. Otherwise. I would be might as well just do a PhD. Uh, right. so it was it was getting too much. So we we just kind of focused more on this aspect of sharing and exchanging of resources. Well, cool. Well, thank you for sharing uh, and exchanging your resources about. Must be drunken glass. That was the drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. After that, let's uh, let's pick it up in the next segment. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 155. I'm not going to do the whole thing again. Just going to jump into Obsidian Man. You just submitted your pro your thesis to ProQuest, so congrats. That means uh, he's officially I'm done. done. He's submitted done, it done. to be published, yeah. or at least like it's on record that it is published and a yeah. piece of work that is his copyright. Yeah, so congrats yeah, so on that. Pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to freaking pay for it. Um, uh, Rich, Rich would tell me that he'd get like randomly get checks from ProQuest. He get like for like twenty cents or something. He'd be like, yay, yeah. someone bought my thesis. I can get bubble gum for that now. Now, <laughs> I don't even think we could afford bubble gum on those prices. Inflation's nah, hell of a not bubblelicious. Tell you that maybe bigger too. 
But yeah, like I, I zoomed into your your thesis defense and like at the end, it's kind of awkward when you're on Zoom to ask questions, but I wanted to, but I can't see whose hands are up. So anyway, what I wanted to ask though was you're a pretty great example of like you were in grad school for a year and a half, then dipped out and did a job immediately, which is kind of, it's not in the, that's the top 1% thing I think that happens. I mean, not, not exactly, but it, it's good to do and it doesn't happen <laughs> often. I wanted to ask, how does your thesis, if you have any last thoughts on that, like how does that contribute to the work you do now? Or like, you know, how can you apply that to what you're doing? Cause that, and essentially that's why you went to grad school, right? Right. Yeah. I was to get my master's so I can move up into my career. I think my thesis is pretty important to, to, you know, the kind of work I'm doing because we, when we, the kind of work I do is a basis on like CRM. So it's cultural resource management, but it's done at the federal level. Mm-hmm. I worked for the Forest Service before, before going into my master's since 2015. And I started my master's in 2021. So I worked there for close to seven years. And so it was, um, you know, one of the things that we definitely looked at when I was there, you know, we had a lot of city insights and what really got me thinking was like, there's so many sites here. What can we do with this? Like, what kind of research can we do with this? And since when I decided I was going to get my master's, I really thought about this. Like, what can we do about this? Like, what can we do with this data? Because we collected so much of it. You know, I didn't really come up with my thesis topic until I actually got there and talked to my advisor about it. And we kind of just sat down and, t- and, look, and looked what, what kind of data I had or had available to. And then we came up with this, this research question. And so what a lot of the the sites that I incorporated into my into my data set were a lot of them were collected from like the data was collected by CRM archaeologists and federal archaeologists, like even the, like those from the BLM or the Forest Service or Fish and Game, like they, a lot of federal agencies do a lot of recording of sites and a lot. And sometimes they will also send these artifacts in to get them sourced. And so that data was crucial to my thesis because mm-hmm. if i just focused on academic sites they usually focus on particular sites and they're usually pretty widespread and i wanted to, to have a very large data set to to be able to look at how this distribution forms across the landscape and so it was pretty important that i incorporated a lot of crm archaeology into this now since i'm on the topic of the forest service like you know that you know it was a very important job for research not just going out there and, you know, just recording a site, calling it good. Mm-hmm. You know, this stuff is going to be important someday for somebody. Yeah, I think that your research, like you were mentioning, and the thing where we're, that we're talking about, all the stuff that the CRM folks, the different government agencies contribute to, is called the gray literature, which is something that not a lot of people have access to. I am currently the gatekeeper for the Wyoming version of that stuff, um, just to make sure that doesn't get into hands that are not. He does um, take bribes. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> not yet. Uh, yeah, I'm state, on federal, so yeah. you can. Yeah. yeah. Th- those are underutilized data sets, I think, in general. And I and t- a lot of my professors would agree. There's a lot of good data to be had in these um, gray literature stuff. And it, it's cool that you're thesis showed the importance of that and that the work people are doing on the ground is is important mm-hmm. yeah would you recommend that people get portable xrf oh, if they work absolutely. in these areas yeah I, if i had one i would be using it all the time because like, like like i was saying when i was working for the forest service like this this one particular force i was working for primarily the all the prehistoric sites had obsidian in it and 
there's a lot of obsidian sources in Eastern Oregon. There's over a hundred of them. So it would have been really nice to have that portable XRF scanner out there, just boop, 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 yeah. and just finding out what, what if all of these pieces are, because we can't collect it all and send it in to get a lot and get tested. It's a lot of work to do so. So <laughs> to have that portable, portable X, XRF would have been super handy. To expand on that. And I guess for non-archaeologists listening, like, it's not just about like, where did this come from? Like the, the piece of obsidian, like what source just so you can match it in like a database. It's like, you want to know if you found something like a, some points or some flakes way out in Portland, you know, like where people used to live, if where that came from. And you can see how far people were going from those church or not church obsidian resources to where they were or if it was traded or mm-hmm. primary or secondary reduction areas, or if it was just, you know, sharpening it up with some pressure flaking. And things, yeah. I mean, I imagine that's like part of a big part of your thesis too. But yeah, and it's like, an, it's like, like I mentioned earlier, it's something we don't, we rarely get information on, and we yeah. know that people are like trading goods and moving stuff, but like we don't have like something as good as obsidian. Obviously, other stuff is being tra- traded as part of this. It's probably obviously humans. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, you're finding other brides, Britons, stuff like that. So it's it's important portable XRFs these days where they just like a couple thousand dollars yeah they're a couple thousand uh, i think more than a couple thousand uh, but and they look like sewing machines like I, uh, I mean it's definitely something we can't afford on a on a but on our budget but yeah you know it's hopefully in the future like this stuff this technology would become more available and uh, i mean like i mean look at uh tablets you know but, um, 10 years ago where all of us were still using 10 or 20 years ago we were still using uh the trembles a lot mm. of a lot of people I know, CRM archaeologists I know, you know, moved over to using tablets or just even our phones uh, because they have just as good of satellite GPS receivers on it now that are just as good as the the ones that were on those Trimble devices. So, and they were cheaper and more re- and like available. So, I think mm. I think in the future, I think XRF would become like, you know, we could you could just take a picture with your phone. Oh, that'd be sweet. <laughs> still do like an XRF analysis yeah. on it. That would that would be super sick. <laughs> Doesn't seem should, that crazy. No, no, and I think there's even like some phones out there with like a lighter camera on it or something like that. So, yeah, I think so. I also want to clarify: it doesn't look like a, a sewing machine. It looks like a um, a screwdriver or like a power drill. Oh, uh, like a Dewalt power, power drill. The one yeah. I'm thinking of yeah. was at the museum, and it was like huge. But yeah, the most of them look like a you know old power drill, a Dewalt. Yeah. Um, they're not very portable if they're sewing machine size. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just I mean, they're, on your still, they're still heavy. <laughs> they're not, they're not light a piece of equipment. They're, they're kind of heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something you don't want to have in your backpack all the time and try to hike around in the woods for up a mountain and, and then just to kind of zap a couple pieces of, of, of obsidian. Well, I guess. Yeah. It's funny to think about it too. Like they look like the little, when you're at the self checkout, like the little, like laser scanner like you could mm-hmm. just have your trowel and like a compass and just have that and just start zapping obsidian barcodes in the in the field pew, pew, pew. <laughs> um, <laughs> why would you need to do that I, I don't really know just to you know have better data while you're walking out there but figure that out later so we've talked about this informally on sea of thieves and on in the bars etc but i think you're like a you're a big proponent of people going into federal offices and doing archaeology and CRM in general, what would be your like spiel to someone 
who is interested in being in the BLM or working for the Forest Service, things like that? Oh, man, I got to do my recruitment speech. <laughs> so I think it's a great opportunity to go into the federal, like a federal agency, like especially at the Forest Service of the BLM, mostly because, you, I mean, you get to travel to different places that you probably never would have thought of to go to, to before. Like many people who worked at Eastern Oregon, they're like, oh, I never would have thought Eastern Oregon looks like this or like, or, you know, parts of Oregon looks like this. And, and so like the Forest Service and the BLM offers a lot of opportunity for people to experience a new terrain, new landscapes and, and new cultures. So, and it's also very steady work. Normally when you, when you first want to start off in, with the federal service, like if it was a federal agency, as a, like an undergrad, you're going to be more, mostly a seasonal, what we call a seasonal employee that is 1039 hours. You get 1039 hours to work for this agency, and which adds up to six months of employment. You get to work out there for the summer or in parts of the fall, maybe spring, and then you get to go off and do other things uh, during the wintertime. And a lot of times we will hire you back. And right now we're, we're definitely shorthanded on a lot of seasonals. You know, there's a lot of agencies that we're, we're offices that were shorthanded on seasonals, mostly because like we're, you know, like everybody else, we're having project uh, boosts in projects due to the, like the infrastructure bill. So we're need more people and we're getting, and we want to get more people. And so I highly recommend a lot of people just to, just to go to USA jobs, uh, which is the main place to find federal agency jobs is on that website, usajobs.gov. Make yourself a profile, upload your resume. Mm-hmm. And a federal <laughs> apply resume. Yeah. A federal resume. It's a little bit different than a C- regular CRM resume. Just get to be longer. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be a little bit, be a little bit longer. You just make sure to read carefully over the, the application and, and try to incorporate some of the terminologies that they use in there. Uh, yeah. Because it, it, we use a little bit different terminologies. When we say class one, two, or three, it's not the type of like class one, which, which is like pedestrian survey, or class mm-hmm. two, which is testing, class three is excavation. We, we use class one, two, three different term. It means that have, we have a different definitions for those. So just read carefully over those and try to incorporate into your federal resume. And don't be disheartened if you don't get into one location and also... One of my biggest advices I can ever give to anybody, any, a new person who wants to get into a seasonal position in, in, the, in the federal agencies is look for places that are not typically well-known. You know, like that's how I got to my job working in Eastern Oregon. I worked in a really small town that I frankly only been to a couple of times when I was just a little kid. So, in, uh, but I had a great time. It was a wonderful forest. I made a lot of good friends there. So yeah, definitely just apply for places you never heard of before. Don't apply for the very popular recreational areas because a lot of other people are going to be competing for that. I mean, you can still apply for those. Definitely go for it. Hmm. You might get it, but you want to ha- definitely have a lot of backups. And if you take one of those jobs too out in the middle of nowhere, like essentially not to say where you're at, it's middle of nowhere, but um, right. I mean, you're near Portland, but <laughs> middle of nowhere, Nebraska, Idaho, sure. Wyoming to some people, like who, who the hell knows where Warland, Wyoming is, but if no you take one. that job and you put your time in with the feds, like then later on you can, you have better chances of, and you're already in with it, you can apply somewhere that you, you would like to work, like Yellowstone or I think the Statue of Liberty in New York is technically a national park. So yeah, um, yeah. Like you get yeah. to do that national kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 I think it's like once you really are in the federal system, like 
things get a lot easier. I think you can, once you're recognized and been hired, but it is kind of a journey. <laughs> yeah. And there are like, and there's some you pay your dues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like David said, it's not the same sort of resume CV. And like Jake mentioned, you might get disheartened because there's lots of jobs that you apply for that you might not get. But if you, if you do your time, it's a, it seems like a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just keep at it. I mean, like I said, it, we're looking for a lot of people. So, I mean, some places just fill up super quickly, but some places don't. And so we are, then we, then we try again. So if you, mm-hmm. if you don't get into the, pla- the place you want first, just keep going and try again at a different place and hopefully you will get it. But yeah, I mean, if you love hiking around in the woods or in, in sagebrush country, I mean, the forest service or the BLM are great agencies for that. And you get, I'm assuming you, um, you've worked with the feds a bunch, so you get probably pretty solid insurance. You get a 401k with the, oh, the yeah. um, I almost said the army. That's what I had, but, um, with it's the really yeah. good federal pe- pension, you get and a really good pension. pension. Yeah. Yeah. yeah pension. And, yeah. And the pay is also probably much better than you'll get in other places. Well, I mean, yeah, for most, for the most part. Yeah. So <laughs> it might take some time. It might take some time yeah. to, to get yeah. into the real good pay ranks. Yeah. Um, and also like just to kind of like another little tidbit about working for the Forest Service or the BLM is that you're not just working with archaeologists. It, I mean, it's not just archaeologists working in these agencies. You're working with a variety of different disciplines from wildlife biologists, fisheries, hydrologists, geologists, forestry specialists or civil culturalists mm-hmm. and range managers, too. And so. You get to work in an agency that is not just about archaeology, but as about all these other disciplines. And you get to meet these people, and you get to work with them, and you get to make really good friendships with them as well. So it's it's a great opportunity for that. Yeah, and what I always like about that too, from friends that do federal work, everyone's tax dollars go to that. So like it's, I mean, not to say it's like a noble cause in any sense, but like you, like it, you're you're doing a service to. American, I guess I, it gets weird. Cause I mean, you're working on indigenous land and stuff, but like it, right, you're, yeah. you're preserving that yeah. essentially and mapping that out and like adding to that heritage a little more. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, like it ha- it's work that has to get done and it's tax money. So yeah. Yeah. And they pay off your student loans if you work for them for 10 years straight. So do they? Yeah. So do that. Thanks Jake. You know, so much for coming on and chatting with us. Really appreciate it. Any recommendations for lit for obsidian stuff that you can think of off the top of your head? Just just buy my thesis. <laughs> Jacob Arnson. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of good books out there for uh, well, or just just articles really. Uh, obsidian in Oregon. The Dan Suber and Craig and Craig Skinner wrote a really good article on glass buttes, uh, the history of glass buttes, and so uh, let's see what else. Uh, the Winds of Winter. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Dragon Glass. Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Must be Dragon Glass. Dragon Glass. A Dream of Spring is the last one. All right, we're done. Anyway, we're not, um, we're not yeah, done with the thesis. interview. We're just he's done with him talking. Well, <laughs> <laughs> David's done. <laughs> are you an Andreski or Andreski? Or are you with the uh, the other guy, Lithics guy? Oh, which other Lithics guy? So you're an Andreski. Yeah, cool. I'm definitely an Andreski. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Washington State's like, yeah, not that far. Jump. Yeah. 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 I know there's well, another I mean, book people in use. Oregon, like, uh, in Eastern Oregon terms, yes, it's a hop, skip it away. But 
Cool. Well, yeah, David, what's the other guy? <laughs> uh, I can't remember his name because uh, I'm Team Andreski, but there's another oh, okay. Lithics book out there that like I've said I have Andreski, and everyone's like, why? And they use something else, and I'm like, whoa. It that, might not be my archaeologist. It might that be Mike uh, Waters, right? Oh no, he was geo archaeology. He's geo arch, yeah. yeah. So remember, someone's sitting shitting their pants right now listening to this because they want to say it with that oh, man, yeah. his veins <laughs> popping out his head. <laughs> I can't. the British one? That. Yeah, there's a British, the, like the Jean Patois one. No, that's yeah. that's French. Yeah, Jean well, Jean All right. Well, yeah. Thank you. We'll put those um, links in the show notes, Jacob. If you had to do this all over again, would you still choose to live a life studying? Must be drunk in class. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought you'd be one of the good ones who said no. no. <laughs> <laughs> We're not I was sad. thinking, We're just like, how do I say no in a very funny way? <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool, man. And we appreciate you listening to the podcast. I remember you telling me. You ended up going to Wyoming because we talked about it enough. Uh, I mean, it was part of your decision. So that means a lot to us and we appreciate you. And I got to be good friends with you this summer. Flint happened every day. It was real fun working with Obsidian. So blast. Yeah, well, I yeah. brought a bunch of glass buttes with me. Yeah, <laughs> that was did. a lot of the Obsidian was glass buttes. <laughs> um, Jacob's a far better napper than me, by the way. Anyone listening? Uh, well, Jacob there. also liked and reviewed the podcast. So, you know, do that and you might get he on did do that. Or I'll guarantee anything. Links? Yeah. You want to plug anything you want to plug, or I guess you want to people buy your thesis. That's right. Yeah. Oh, Where can yeah. They find yeah. your thesis. Or ProQuest. ProQuest. Okay. Yeah. Like, review the podcast, rate, send us emails, yell at David for yeah. being a Columbus sympathizer oh and creating Jane Goodall. You know, just keep what do you doing know about that. Vasco to Gamma, though? Or you could, yeah, or you can just email me at. Right. Yeah, email me and uh, I will send you my resume. I will probably be in the show notes. <laughs> I mean, my thesis. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. You have died of dysentery. Yeah, and with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Jacob's a, a fan of the show, so he knows what's coming up right now. Connor, you got a joke? Wow, what a great audience. <laughs> Did you hear that I got arrested? Did? No. Yeah, I left my car at the bar and took the bus home. Turns out I was too drunk to drive that, too. Wow. <laughs> Topical. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.